Hello, everyone. Very warm welcome to this In Conversation with Dr. David Nabarro, Special Envoy for the World Health Organization on COVID-19. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the Director of the Institute for Government. Before we kick off, some really brief housekeeping arrangements. We're going to be tweeting live from IFG events using the hashtag IFGNabarro, that's with two R's. Please follow and tweet along. Please do send in your questions to David as early as you like. That could be now. If you give your name and where you're viewing from, um, it's always really great to know. That sometimes gives it useful context to the question. You can post your questions in the panel on the right of your screen. And we're going to have a video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours, thanks to the terrific IFG team. And well, with that, let me introduce David, though many of you will know um, extensively what his background is. He's been co-director and chair of global health at Imperial College London's Institute of Global Health Innovation since 2019. It's the latest stage in a career in international public health, from academia to the civil service to intergovernmental organizations. Over the last two decades or so, he's worked for the United Nations and the World Health Organization as UN System Senior Coordinator for Avian and Pandemic Influenza in 2005. Special Envoy for the West Africa Ebola outbreak response in, in 2014 and chair of the expert group on the reform of the WHO's work on outbreak, outbreaks and emergencies in 2015. And of course, the reason we're talking to him today, not only all those things, but in March 2020, David was appointed as one of the WHO's special envoys on COVID-19. David, very warm welcome. Thank you, Bronwyn. Lovely to be with you and to be with everybody to come back in a way to the Institute for Government. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm really pleased that we're having this conversation right now, two years into the pandemic, uh, nearly because the the issues around governance are just so enormous, and uh, I look forward to not only uh, exploring with you but also taking any questions that. Uh, Listeners and viewers might have. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's um, actually even since we conceived this event, it has come rocketing up the news again, even in a week that contains budget, the budget run up to the COP summit. Let me start, David, with just a really um, panoramic question, if you like. Where are we globally in this pandemic? Well, um, I just have to say that we are in the midst of it. A pandemic will end either when the virus or, or other pathogen that's causing it becomes so uh, weak in terms of its capacity to harm that it is something that we don't worry about, or when the numbers of people who are susceptible drops to a very low level and so there's nobody left to infect. But with this pandemic, there is still an awful lot of people who are susceptible. The virus is not showing any signs of weakening. Uh, and I want to just make one other point, which is the virus is, is also telling us that it's, it's going to change and it is changing. You've all heard about the variants. Uh, so that means that I think we have to be very clear that, that we are mid-pandemic. And the only uh, qualification I put is that we're also realizing that because the virus is likely to stick around for quite some time, we are uh, hearing the term 
endemic used, which means it's here to stay. But that doesn't mean that it is an easier problem. In fact, it's here to stay and the problems are becoming more and more tricky, which is why uh, our discussion today is so relevant. Mm. So when you, you say we're, we're hearing that term endemic, which we absolutely are, and you're seeing more and more analyses saying, look, it's going to be with us, you know, for, for our years, for decades, for our lifetimes, whatever. Is that a view you share? Yes, I do. I was reading The Economist, OK, uh, just just uh, I've just come uh, to, to Geneva from outside the uh, Switzerland, so The Economist of 16th, 22nd. And I was quite impressed that what it says uh, in the, an editorial is quite straightforward. The pandemic uh, is going to become uh, an endemic situation. So that means the virus is going to stick around. But it's also saying that doesn't mean it gets any easier. And so uh, what, I, what I want everybody to understand is that we will have to learn to live with this virus as humanity, but we will also have to learn to do it without there being continuous uh, high levels of sickness, death, or economic disturbance, or mental uh, despair, or even uh, instability and possibility of insurrection in different places. This pandemic can affect so many aspects of, of life, and the, the challenge is, instead of being in a situation where we, we just feel that it is undermining everything, uh, instead, can we not, as, as humanity, learn what it takes to hold the virus at bay and to get on with life, uh, and also indeed to, to have resilient economies and continued employment uh, that um, therefore means that we, we also don't end up with having to cope with all sorts of sequelae. And, and that for myself and my colleagues in WHO and in the United Nations is the challenge. Can we get the narrative right so that we can actually start talking about what it takes to live with this threatening and, and actually quite nasty virus in our midst uh, without it then meaning that all our lives and livelihoods get disturbed? Because I don't want that. And I, 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 I really dislike this sort of notion that this pandemic is either uh, about lockdown or getting on with life as normal, sort of freedoms, and we oscillate between the two. Why can't we find a path that actually enables life to go on and the virus not to be causing collapse of health services or massive destruction in society? So you put it very well, um, it, 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 not the binary choice that we've been having, no like in the oscillation between them, but finding some ways to live with this. Yeah. Uh, but from what you said, we're, we're not we're not there yet, um, even in finding those ways to accommodate it. Could you, we're still really talking at the global level here. Could you break it down for us and, and just describe where the virus is still surging and where it is more contained? So what tends to happen is that it surges in, in quite a cyclical way. You get periods of surge and then periods when it, it seems as though it's relatively quiet. And so we had in, in the earlier months of this year, huge surges in India. And some might remember seeing these pictures of, of people being cremated in, in quite a public way. There's a lot of sadness and hunts for oxygen in, in big cities. 
And now it's much quieter in India with a lot of vaccination, but also uh, quite quite a lot of respect um, for the way in which the virus spreads. So sort of calm down. And in, in much of Latin America, it seems to be uh, less, less potent and less fearsome. But in Europe, if we go eastwards from where we are uh, towards Latvia and the Baltic countries, towards the Balkan uh, states like uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina and Serbia, or then countries of the former Soviet Union, Ukraine, Russia, Actually, the numbers there are, are really quite concerning, and there is signs of health services being overwhelmed and not many beds to care for people, death rates going up. Uh, and so that's actually where the problems are greatest. It's also quite bad in some Caribbean islands and countries in, in the Pacific region. Uh, and it's coming up again in one or two parts of Africa, Botswana, for example, numbers rising. Altogether, everybody, that's what we see. It comes in spikes and surges and then builds up, often in quite a narrow location. And then as people get nervous about it and change their behavior, go back to wearing masks and so on, uh, and uh, public health services get ramped up so that transmission can be stopped, then it comes down again. Mm. Now, the, the ways in which society is dealing with this virus varies hugely from place to place. But what we've learned in the last few months is the following. First of all, the virus is the problem. People are the solution. And so if, if the effort to contain COVID is going to work, there has to be a partnership between authorities and people, a partnership between national government, local authorities, businesses, religious organizations, leisure clubs, whatever organization or association we're in, the leaders and the members need to work together. And that's super important because that means just simply working on restriction and punishment or coercion as the way to get people to behave uh, so that the virus doesn't spread. It's quite, uh, quite limited what you can achieve through that approach when we've learned that with other diseases. So in, involving people as partners is point one and point two is that the, the services, particularly health services, have got to be organized so that they support people working as partners in the response and that means all the time thinking, how can we organize public health or how can we organize local government or national government so that it enables people to be empowered? And that's all people, very poor people and wealthy people, not any one segment of the population. When you're talking about coercion there, I assume you're talking about things like lockdowns and so on, which become after a bit. Uh, exhausting and unpopular. But we've we've got this far without really mentioning vaccination. And I wondered what role you felt that had to play in this adjustment that you're describing, our, our accommodation with a virus and, and a web, our, our, our techniques of keeping it under control, and indeed whether you support a degree of coercion or strong incentive, if you want to put it that way, vaccine passports and so on, to get people vaccinated. Thanks. The vaccines that we've got to deal with COVID that have really come on stream this year 
are a godsend. Mm. It's been almost a miracle. Amazing science done at great speed. Vaccines that seem to be pretty effective in terms of their efficacy. They seem to have low side effects, really low. Uh, and um, um, they're beginning to become available in a decent quantity. And there is still a, a, a serious shortage. They're not available in anything like the amount that the world actually needs. But they are really great. You mm. see, if I am working with a community and I'm encouraging them to act in ways that stop this virus from moving around, I, I want to encourage everybody to, first of all, uh, protect uh, themselves with masks because that stops uh, virus particles being exhaled into the pathway of somebody else. It also means that if somebody else is walking past you and exhaling the virus, if you've got a well-fitting mask, you are less likely to inhale it. So the mask is a vital asset in this. Secondly, maintaining enough distance so that you are not going to be at risk of inhaling or exhaling uh, uh, um, virus particles. Uh, and so the, the distancing does matter. And then thirdly, ventilation. You want to make sure that air is flowing. So a place that's got no ventilation and where people are very close together and they're not wearing masks or, or other form of face protection, that's a place where the virus can move uh, very easily and it's the kind of situation we want to try to avoid. So mm. that, that's going to be at the centre of it. And then what the vaccine does is it provides a kind of immunological shield around people who are particularly at risk. And the real use for the vaccine right now is saving lives. People who are diabetic, health workers, people who are old in their 70s, 80s and beyond, uh, they are at really high risk of, of death. And so if, if we can actually enable those who are at high risk to be protected with the vaccine, it's, like, it's a really wonderful shielding technique. What I'm not so sure about is whether I'm comfortable as a global person with a few countries doing really intense vaccination to try to end the pandemic through vaccination, even mm -hmm. vaccinating children or giving booster doses to older people saying we're going to try to go for complete uh, immunological coverage. Because what that does with the current vaccine supply situation is it means that the vaccine gets sucked up by countries that can afford to buy it. Uh, and can afford to keep big stocks, which means that the rest of the world just doesn't have enough. And that's the situation we have at the moment, incredible inequality in, in vaccine access. So mm. if I had a magic wand, I would say, can we please share the vaccine fairly in all countries so that those who are at greatest risk of death are prevented from dying? Uh, then that would be the, the, the thing to do at this stage, and can we stop the vaccination with all the actions that are needed to stop the spread of the virus, like masking, like physical distancing, and can we have really well-functioning, locally integrated uh, services to help interrupt transmission, which is what in Britain is called the test, trace and isolate approach. Uh, other places it's called case finding and contact tracing. So you need that as well. 
So let me, that was a really interesting answer with many, many bits to it. Let me pick out some bits of it. I'm, I'm going to skate over though your, your reference at the beginning of the vaccines being godsend and uh, miraculous. I think some scientists working on it would raise an eyebrow. Um, um, uh, feeling that uh, science is more terrestrially based. Um, but you are talking there about um, the moral argument for sharing out vaccines, if you like. We had an interesting conversation, one in this series, with Neil Ferguson, Professor Neil, Neil, yeah. Neil Ferguson uh, uh, of, of Imperial College, and put I put to him the question of whether governments uh, could say, well, look, it's in our own self-interest to share out these vaccines because it will keep coming, the disease will keep coming in um, if, if the world isn't vaccinated. And he said, no, um, there's a moral argument, which you've just made, but actually the self-interest of nations is to vaccinate their own people. And then with the lo comparatively low levels of travel that we've got at the moment, uh, they will protect their own populations. And it's, it's a dilemma for governments, isn't it? Because they're elected by their people. I'm not saying they're elected just to do things in the self-interest of that country. There's a big constituency for overseas aid support here. But they, they are responsible to those voters. And the, you know, the thrust of policy might well be to look, protect your voters. Yes. And so that's the tough question. I will take the view that the people of Britain or Europe or the US are best served if the level of virus in the world is kept as low as possible and if the death due to the virus in the in the world are kept as even across rich and poor nations because the virus is constantly mutating. And right now we are pretty lucky in that most of the mutants that are kind of uh, moving around, uh, particularly the Delta, are, are not defeating the protection offered by vaccine. But there's a variant of the Delta that's coming along and we're looking at that very carefully. There's also something called the Beta, which was particularly worrisome, which looked as though that could defeat the vaccine protection. And, and my, my view is, it's pretty pretty likely that there are going to be variants emerging that will beat the vaccines that are being used in Europe and the US. Uh, why, why, where are they going to come from? They're going to come from other places in the world where perhaps there's an awful lot of virus moving around. Look, they may come from the, the spread of virus among uh, unprotected people in uh, Europe and the US. Uh, but we're all going to depend on each other at various points in dealing with this. And if we don't deal with it as a global challenge, what's likely to happen is that there will be a great deal of resentment and mistrust, especially if at some point uh, uh, Europe and, and the US actually are going to rely on uh, vaccine production in other parts of the world or skills in other parts of the world and cooperation from other parts of the world. So in summary, I'm not personally of the opinion that the people of any one country are best served by an effort by the leaders of that one country to say, we're going to focus on our people and we're not going to be part of a global solution. Now, mm. that's so partly because of me being a global health person. Yeah, thank you for that. So I think we, we do have a, a 
um, a nuanced difference of opinion with Neil Ferguson, but but partly partly because you have put um, the weight on the the potential variants to keep coming. Yeah. He did, uh, and partly the moral argument that you've made, which he he wasn't um he wasn't dismissing uh, 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 at all. He was simply speaking from the point of individual governments. Um, if we just go to the UK for a moment, um, what do you make of its record? And I'm, I'm talking not of the first few months, but it had big success in vaccination, and then has slowed down quite a bit compared to other countries. Um, or politicians are rather, you know, pleased to have been ahead of France in, in percentage of the uh, population vaccinated. Now, no longer, uh, same with, um, I believe, Italy and Spain and, and others. What do you think the UK is doing right and wrong at the moment? Well, uh, it's never a race between countries. I, I don't understand this competitive approach. We're all dealing with the same problem and the problem is really complex we're all needing to learn we're all needing to understand uh, how best to deal with it and so this competition my country's stronger than yours just really disturbs me we're, we're also needing to help everybody have a, a reasonably consistent view of what's going on um, and, and that's become difficult. It's partly because it's a challenging situation, it's a new virus and so on. And it's also, it, it's an interesting virus. It, it doesn't have a very high lethality rate. You know, only a small proportion of people who get it go on and become seriously ill and die. So it means that there's a lot of scope for people to start questioning, is this really a problem and what does need to be done about it? So for me, the one most important requirement is that anybody in a decision-making position does their level best not to trivialise or diminish the issues and in particular not to let the, the choice of strategy be something that is given a, a party political or an ideological label. I mean, I've just been in Italy. And I'm really pleased that I can wear a mask anywhere in Italy at the moment when I'm out, particularly in the street or on public transport or in a meeting mm. without people, Italians who I work with, uh, basically ridiculing me or questioning my politics and things like that. I find it absolutely weird that in some parts of the world, if I wear a mask, uh, I am assumed to have a particular uh, voting tendency or political position. I don't know how that has happened. I don't know why it has happened. It is alarming me enormously because I actually don't think that one's political position on this virus is going to have any influence on what it's going to do to oneself or one's family or one's community or one's nation. And so it's something I can't actually explain to myself and I can't understand. And it makes it very difficult. If, if, if public health people are going to be offering advice and then the way that advice is treated will depend on the voting preference of the recipient of the advice, it's, it's challenging. And in fact, I've noticed a lot of my public health colleagues 
sort of not quite sure how to position themselves with this uh, very polarized reaction. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on and wherever I am, I want to give the same consistent advice. But it's difficult if public health people get sacked or get uh, yeah. other forms of, of, of privation uh, if they're doing their job and it happens not to align well with the boss of the country or the boss of the province or whatever it is. Um, and thank, I, I, thank I, I'm sorry to be stuck on that one, but I am. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. I'm going to start bringing in questions now because we've got a lot of them. They've all come in a rush and, and there's some very good ones. Um, let me start with one uh, from Aletha Adu of The Mirror in London. Mm. Um, saying in the UK, it's a multi-part question. I'm just, forgive me, Aletha, I'm going to take the first part. Um, in the UK, currently COVID cases and hospitalizations are soaring at a faster rate than they were this time last year, even with vaccinations that we've got now. Should the government be making face masks a legal requirement? I mean, vaccines alone are not really going to stop this pandemic. A vaccine can prevent death and severe disease. But to stop the virus spreading, uh, and we need to do that, we have to use other techniques of which masking and distancing is, is one set and uh, also having really good quality locally integrated public health services is the other. So I'm very much with my colleagues in WHO saying let's adopt a systems approach to this problem and not trying to deal with it with one intervention alone. And, uh, uh, if, if I am asked by decision makers in any country, including the UK, I'm saying there is a really important role for masking. Uh, there is a really important role for physical distancing, particularly to try to avoid inhaling the air that's expired by, uh, that's exhaled by others. Um, so that would be my position in response to that question. Uh, and um, I, I'm, 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 uh, I don't like the notion of mandating mask wearing because that then will provoke uh, potential um, uh, counter behaviour and all the other stuff that we've seen. Mm. I'm instead saying let's let's just get to a point where it is normal practice, as it is in many countries in Southeast Asia right now, and as it is in Italy, as it is in France. Why mm. can't it be the same in Britain? Yeah, so thank you for that. Um, yes, I mean, there hasn't been the politicization of mask wearing in the UK that there has been in the US, for example. Bit of it in the House of Commons. Yes. Uh, different sides uh, of it. And that's meaningful. From, that, sorry. That is meaningful because people pay a huge amount of attention to those who are in um, leadership positions, whether they are in the, in the pulpit, in the church, or uh, the manager of a football club, or the school teacher, or indeed the local politicians, the mayors and the politicians in Parliament, because they can, they, they're talked and they're picked up and they're on Twitter and so on. Have the so health I'm very keen that happen. there is role yeah. modelling wherever yeah. possible. I think we have the health secretary, Sajid Javid, now saying he's going to wear a mask. And this is a week when there's a lot of attention on Westminster because of the budget and spending review. So we'll have a close look at that. Let me come on to another question from Philomena yeah. in Edinburgh. And she says, should COVAX, COVAX, sorry, the global initiative um, for sharing uh, and, and improving uh, coronavirus vaccine access across the world, should it look to build sustainability in low middle income countries? 
which enable, in a way uh, to to enable them to have long longer term vaccine self sufficiency, yeah, yeah. making their own and and so bolstering the global supply. And how would you do this? Well, uh, that's right on 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 the on the on the nail that one because um, there is a shortage of vaccines at the moment and. COVAX set up advanced purchase agreements that, had they been fulfilled, would have meant that we had much more even distribution of vaccines. But the, the nations that have considerable wealth have, have gone to the companies and have negotiated uh, a better deal, indeed, for the companies, which has meant that some of the deliveries that would have gone for poor countries to COVAX have just not been met. Now, there's a fair amount of debate about whether this is because there have been higher prices of vaccines and the companies have accepted them or whether it's because of production difficulties or whether in fact they, the, the numbers are just wrong. But I'm just saying my perspective is that the COVAX scheme would have worked if everybody had stuck to the principles that had been put into setting it up. Uh, and it's not working because as far as we can tell, uh, um, some countries are getting to the front of the queue uh, and are, are, are creaming off vaccine supplies. So the result is that, for example, in Africa, there are now major projects underway to stimulate vaccine production in countries as diverse as South Africa and Morocco. Uh, and it's happening very, very fast. It's the African Vaccine Initiative. Uh, I'm very closely with the people involved in it. And it's great, and, and it's um, something that I'd like to see more of. And I think after this, we will see a much greater emphasis on production capacity in poorer countries because they just can't trust the systems that are set up based on production in rich countries. Even if they're set up with global agreement like COVAX, it's, it's gone wrong. And it's gone wrong because not everybody's sticking by what we perceive to be the rules. All right, thank you for that. And that goes a long way to answer a question, a very similar question from Sir Hugh Bailey, who's a commissioner for the ICAI, that's the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, looking at the impact uh, of, of um, UK overseas aid. Um, Sir Hugh, will you forgive me if I don't delve into the nuances of your, of your, of your question, but I think we've got a blast of, a, of the answer there. Um, it's, it's come to one from Mike Rowell, from, who's a calls himself a communication specialist at the Royal Mail yeah. and he says in today's Telegraph the headline is to avoid a winter of chaos ministers must take a stand over Covid messaging. Yeah. What is taking place with ministers regarding campaigns to raise awareness and dispel uh, misinformation? And this is part of really quite, a, I mean we've got this thread running through quite a few questions of a sort of very disconcerted, worried feel about why numbers are going up in the UK and where it's going to go and what the government ought to be doing about it? Well, I have to say I'm very nervous of, of the notion of misinformation. People form their view about an issue like this on the basis of what they hear, what they read, what they pick up in conversation. And if there is a mix of voices. And in particular, if there's a feeling that perhaps the establishment has just gone down uh, a cul-de-sac and has got things wrong, then there will be a build-up of, of frustration. And in particular, it, it's quite easy to ignite a frustration that is linked to the notion uh, that there is a group of people who are trying to impose behavior and actions on others 
uh, and it's uh, uh, inappropriate, uh, it's uh, controlling, it's the nanny state or whatever. I mean, the reality is in public health, you rely on people who spend their time studying the data and looking at trends. Uh, and they're the they're specialists in this, they're at universities, they're like Professor Ferguson. You rely on those people to help decision makers get it right. I mean, they can give you uh, their assessment of the coming risk and what needs to be done about it. And by systematically challenging and even disregarding or, or vilifying and ridiculing those who provide this advice, what you do is you create a space within which other theories and other possibilities emerge and develop credence. And then they get linked to powerful individuals, uh, opinion formers or political leaders or whatever. And, and then folks say, well, if President X or Prime Minister Y says that this is all stupid and we shouldn't be worrying about it, why should I actually be going to the extra, extra trouble? Or even more importantly, uh, why should I accept that I've got to change the way in which I run my business or the way in which I teach in my school or the way in which I run my organization. Why should I, I bother? And it, it really is the inconsistency and, and in some cases downright effort, downright um, um, deliberate efforts to undermine messaging that, mm. that make life very, very difficult for, for ordinary folk and ordinary folk right across the spectrum. So, my line is uh, that, that one of the major responsibilities of government, one of the major responsibilities of leaders is to do everything possible not to lead to confusion. Now, I accept that there are genuine differences of view. And so I'm not saying that everybody's got to somehow uh, walk in line and, and, and just dish out the same words all over the place if they really don't believe it. But at the same time, sort of deliberately seeking to undermine and to create a, a lack of confidence in authority makes this kind of work really, really hard to do. So I would say to any government, please, could you do everything you can to debate in private, establish a common message, mm -hmm. give out that common message honestly and transparently, when the time comes to change it, could everybody change at the same time? Because otherwise it creates an impossible situation for people, especially nearly two years into it. It, it actually demoralizes people. So I'm, I'm very, very keen on consistency and discipline on messaging everywhere, uh, mm. because if we don't do it, it's just not fair. Thank you for that. And I think in that you've also answered a question from Marianne, uh, Marianne Emler from the Scottish government, but she says she's attending this in a, in a personal capacity. And she says the pandemic has also been referred to as a pandemic of misinformation. How can governments and international organizations better counteract the spread of misinformation that impacts the response to pandemics? And you've, you've given us an answer to that. I think if we were in a live event and Marianne was sitting right here, I might um, push her and you to discuss whether the, the, the Scottish government and Boris Johnson's government could have been more in lockstep than they were over, over some of this. Can I make a comment about that, Bronwyn? Okay. I mean, Britain has these four administrations within one nation, uh, and the uh, United States has uh, state administrations within one nation. When people see major differences in strategy,
in devolved administrations which cannot be justified on the grounds of the pandemic having a different shape or pattern in the different administrations. It is massively confusing. They say, why on earth is there a different approach being taken in Scotland compared with the mm. UK, uh, with England? Or why is there a different approach being taken in Florida as opposed to Massachusetts? And, and I actually think that there is a responsibility on governance to do everything possible not to create that uh, confusion and uncertainty because then it's really hard for people to actually know what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. It, it is really vital to sort that out because the impact of this difference is it, it doesn't just stay inside the United Kingdom. The rest of the world is looking at Britain. Britain has an unenviable reputation in good quality public health practice. And for people in other countries to see different administrations in the UK or different states in the US having different strategies, not because of differences in the nature of the problem, but because of differences in ideology and belief or whatever else, I think that's that's not good government, really. Yeah. OK, thank you for that. Um, and I just want to stay for a moment, not the whole of the rest of the session, but on this question of whether the UK government at this point is doing enough because it's occupying a lot of our audience. Let me just bring in a couple of questions here. One from uh, Shoaib in Cambridgeshire saying, why is the government delaying the reintroduction of face masks? Why are we the exception? The WHO has repeatedly told us that face masks should be worn. So that's one. And then there's another one from Tom in Birmingham saying UK SAGE, uh, science advice, uh, body have um, have said that working from home is the best means of restricting further spread in the UK. Would you be recommending that we re return to uh, working from home, uh, that the government shouldn't be encouraging people back into the office? So there's a lot of questions there about the government's choice of strategy and whether it's too um, relaxed at this point. In, in WHO, we try really hard not to directly criticise individual government strategies unless we're getting given an invitation to do so by the government itself. Yeah. However, I want to make a general point about working from home. Uh, only a small proportion of the working population actually can work from home uh, in an easy way. For example, uh, where you've got two working parents and uh, children at home, it's super hard to do all the necessary support for the children, particularly if there's homeschooling, and at the same time for both parents to be able to work. I mean, we know this. In some situations, the, the home circumstances are just not large enough or appropriate, and people get cooped up together, and there are all sorts of domestic difficulties that emerge, difficulties uh, um, between the adults or you know, other other constellations, then there are some jobs that just can't be done from home. And, and a lot of people who have to go to work, the essential workers, are, are low-paid people. They may be people in jobs for which they, they're on daily wages or uh, they're in the informal economy. So I'm super careful about ever, myself at least, saying, well, working from home is an answer. It's one of the routes to reducing the opportunities for the virus to spread. But, but just let's always remember that there are many who cannot work from home or there are disadvantages to working from home. And so I'm 
being super cautious about that being a prescription. I do, however, think that the well-fitting proper face protection, I advocate these surgical masks. I think they are really the, to be recommended, probably much more beneficial than homemade local masks. I, I used to not think that, but I've become much more convinced of this. The mask on properly, pressed down over the bridge of your nose, not hanging below your nose, and uh, re really trying to be diligent about it. I actually think this has an enormously positive uh, approach. We don't have all the science, but the general feeling in, in other, other, other European countries is that it's especially with numbers rising like we're seeing in, in many places, it's the right thing to do. Great. Well, thank, thank you for that. Well, coming towards the end of this, uh, I know you said that the WHO doesn't rush to criticise governments. So here's an invitation to praise yes. them from uh, Tahira in, in Glasgow. Uh, and she does indeed refer to the uh, COP26 madness about to descend on her city. Mm. She says, um, what are the top three countries, in your opinion, who've dealt with the pandemic well? I, I missed your what you said. I'm absolutely so what, what, sorry. What are the top three countries, in your opinion, who've done with it, dealt with the pandemic well? Taking your point, it's not about a competition, but still, if you're looking for examples, yeah. and models, if you like, which countries would you look to? Again, I want to be really careful. What I'm going to do is to talk about the characteristics that I think are really good. First, I want to stress a partnership between government and people. Now, it's super difficult to do that if you're also doing a vaccine mandate, but at least in, 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 in France, uh, in Italy, in Israel, uh, and in quite a lot of other places in Europe, even though there are people who are resisting being vaccinated, and we all accept there will be some who just really don't want it, uh, and that's fine, you know, it's not, I'm against compulsion. Uh, when there is a sense that people and government are working together and there's a dialogue that's open at local level, at national level, at regional level, then I sense things go much, much better. And in the majority of Western European countries, there is a really positive and constructive dialogue and there is a feeling that those who are in positions of authority and people are working together. Secondly, when you've got a spike developing, as has happened in uh, many parts of Europe uh, in, in recent months, it's great if there can be a coming together of local government together with local associations, local businesses and um, local religious groups and so on of, of all kinds so that everybody is integrated and working together. The, the ones that work best are the ones where this habit of integrating and working together on the response is dominant and particularly that means truces between political parties. Again, much of Western Europe has moved into that way of working. There are relatively few countries where there's standoffs between different political leaders because what's turned out is where that happens, the virus just really has fun and causes lots of trouble. Thirdly, uh, just last point, uh, I think that where it is recognized that working together across borders gives the best result, it makes a huge difference. And that means across borders between cities, across borders between counties or states, and across borders between nations. And, and 
what we have learned over the last uh, few months is that if there's a big radical difference when you go across a border, uh, that also leads to things being much more difficult. I want to try to avoid doing too much more in the way of mentioning countries mm, or right. cities and so on, just because I don't think it's helpful. All right. Uh, well, um, thank you. Thank you for that. You've, you're very diplomatically um, not, uh, not done that. Let me just squeeze in in our last minute. Um, yeah. One, one other question. Uh, I'm sorry, it's one that you might have uh, quite a bit um, to say on, but whether you feel that the WHO and its its role has become more difficult because of the dispute with China over access to information um, on the early stages of the virus. I mean, the WHO operates as, through the consent of nations and Nations have created rules about the terms under which WHO officials can get into their countries in order to investigate what goes on. The WHO does not have carte blanche to go anywhere. It's not a kind of health police. I think that uh, obviously that means that there are limitations as to what can be done. But some of the people who criticized WHO, particularly last year, knew full well how the organization works, know full well the terms of the international health regulations. One of the most critical countries last year was really active in negotiating the international health regulations 2005. So uh, it's, it's as though actually the owners of WHO mm. in some ways undermine the organization. I think it's getting better, but uh, it's, it, we, we, it's taken a bit of a hit. And uh, just like, as I said, last point here, uh, or an awful lot depends on trust between government and people. Well, an awful lot also depends on trust between the international system, the UN and WHO, and the collective of governments. And much of what we have to do in the coming months is to try to do everything possible to restore trust, because without trust, this thing's going to go on causing a lot of damage. With that, we really are going to have to stop. We clearly could go on for a long time. There are lots of great questions. I'm sorry I couldn't get in more. David Nabarro, thank you very much indeed for being with us and everyone else. Thank you.